Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Extremism can take many forms and can be motivated or animated by almost any ideology at all. Unfortunately, we are dealing with a spectrum of extremist ideologies here. We don't have the luxury of focusing on any just one. So much of the content that is out there related to right-wing ideology stops short of actually advocating specifically for violence, but it does use terminology that leaves the listener with the idea that they must take it on themselves to go do something about it. We can't just pretend that the small numbers here won't cause harm. One person with a small group can cause irreparable harm. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. In this podcast, we are bringing you the second of a two-part series on right-wing extremism and domestic terror. In the last podcast, we spoke to Dr. Christy Campion and Alex Mann on the history of right-wing extremism in Australia, how it differs from your standard racism and ethno-nationalism, and we discussed the current threat landscape, who the actors are, and how they operate. Today, we will be looking at it from a policy perspective and what the challenges are for national security policymakers in confronting this threat. Joining us in that discussion are Nick Rasmussen and Jacinta Carroll. Nick is the former head of counterterrorism for the United States and he was recently visiting the National Security College as a Vice-Chancellor's Distinguished Visiting Fellow and he is the Senior Director for National Security and Counterterrorism Programs at the McCain Institute for International Leadership. Jacinta Carroll has recently concluded a secondment to the National Security College as Director of Policy Engagement and came to us from the Attorney General's Department where she worked on counterterrorism and countering violent extremism. Prior to that, Jacinta worked at the Department of Defence focusing on military operations, campaign planning and international policy with a focus on the Middle East. And, unfortunately, we bring this episode to you in the wake of another extremist attack. This time it was on a synagogue in Halle, Germany, by what seems to be another neo-Nazi right-wing extremist. Let's hear from Jacinda and Nick on this exact challenge. G'day Nick, g'day Jacinta, welcome back to the National Security Podcast. 
It's terrific to be here. Thank you, Chris. Great to see you again, Chris. All right. I'll start with you, Nick. Now, last time you were on the podcast, uh, which was actually prior to the Christchurch attacks, you raised the threat of right-wing extremism and you said that the US wasn't properly structured or prepared in terms of policy to respond to these attacks as terrorism. Uh, For those new to the National Security Podcast, could you briefly explain what the problem is as you see it? Well, the, the problem as I see it is that we've always had um, a differentiated approach in terms of the way we deal with international terrorism and what we call in the United States domestic terrorism, where the approach we take to international terrorism, and that's terrorism of the sort associated with the ISIS or Al-Qaeda ideology, um, international terrorism, we tend to rely on a very much a whole of government approach with all of the different government departments and agencies around the table bringing their capability to bear on the problem, whether it's intelligence or military or diplomatic or financial. Um, all of our capabilities are, are part of the mix to include law enforcement as well. And the contrast is, is, is to the to situation when we're dealing with domestic terrorism. Um, most of the rest of us in the room simply push back from the table and, and look to the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, our, our premier federal law enforcement agency. And we treat it almost solely as a law enforcement responsibility to deal with this domestic terrorism which in most cases these days is turning out to be right-wing extremist terrorism. And that means you're only using one set of tools, the law enforcement set of tools. And and when I criticize our government for this approach, I'm in no way, uh, in any way, casting aspersions against the FBI, which does a terrific job. It is um, as good, if not better, a law enforcement organization than any in the world. But if we are simply treating it as a law enforcement issue where we have to arrest perpetrators and prosecute them, we're really not going to get ahead of this domestic terrorism problem in the United States. Yeah. So as you said, it's it's an issue between domestic and international terrorism. And since we uh, recorded that podcast, we've seen some major attacks around the world from right-wing extremist groups, such as in Christchurch and also in El Paso, Texas. And there's been some more, uh, some lesser attacks in places like Norway, again, which has been previously the scene of a, of a major right-wing attack. Have these events shifted the way that uh, Washington and the policymakers are viewing how to respond to domestic terrorism? Well, there's certainly pressure on government in Washington right now to develop responses to this domestic terrorism, this right-wing um, extremism that le- that has led to, to, ter- to multiple terrorist attacks. Um, if you look at the most recent testimony um, offered by our FBI director, Chris Ray in front of the Congress, um, he certainly pointed to the, to the fact that this is the more lethal um, threat to our homeland right now. More Americans have died as a result of these kinds of terrorist attacks as opposed to what we traditionally think of as international terrorist attacks. Um, so I would I would argue that government is, is in a sense caught on its back foot right now and is trying to play catch up. Um, uh, I suspect also that our Congress will try to legislate in this area. I'm aware of at least a few efforts underway to bring legislation in front of the Congress that would perhaps give us a stronger set of laws to deal with domestic terrorism. Again, right now we differentiate between domestic and international terrorism with our with our legal approach. So to your question, Chris, yes, there's a, there's a growing sense of urgency, a growing sense of pressure, and 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 
Let's also be clear, we're in, the, we're in the early stages of a presidential campaign. That will mean candidates will be compelled to speak to this issue, to bring their own plans forward, and to try to contrast those plans with what President Trump and his administration are doing. Yeah, so you've, you've actually just led beautifully into my next, my next question. So you, you've highlighted, say, the FBI, but you've also highlighted political representatives as well. And as we know, with the current administration, there's a certain bit of tension between parts of the government and uh, politicians. Has the political cl- climate that is accompanying this tension and the rhetoric that goes along with it, has that influenced the threat of domestic terrorism in the US or is that a, is that a bit of a furphy or a bit of a red herring? I, I think it's hard to deny that the political climate contributes. There's no way to argue that the political climate does not contribute to what we're seeing right now. I'm hesitant to, to, to lay this all at the in a causal way at the feet of any one politician to include the president. But it's clear that the the kind of rhetoric our president uses uh, often mirrors or is mirrored by rhetoric used by some of these individuals who carry out these hateful attacks, the, the kind of the narrative of, of immigrants as invaders, the, the, the sense that Western uh, or white society is potentially under assault or under attack because of this invasion of people who don't look like us or, or who speak a different language. Those are the terms and the, and the, um, and the images that are being appropriated by these um, extremists, these right-wing extremists who've carried out these attacks. And unfortunately, they're not too far off from what the president is saying. Now, Jacinta, you've worked in this space for a large amount of your career. Uh, how do you view the discussion in policy circles in Australia? Has the threat of, say, right-wing extremism been a little overlooked in Australia in the past? Did the Christchurch attacks have an impact on how we view these this particular threat? And what responsibility do politicians have in framing public discourse around this issue? Yeah, thanks, Chris. Look, all great questions. Certainly, the Christchurch attack... Uh, caused all Australian uh, security uh, counter-terrorism investigators, police and policymakers to look again at how we're seeing terrorism and whether our focus is on the right um, sources of threat. So really, the Christchurch has been a wake-up call in making sure that we've actually got that calibrated well. The investigative community, the political community and the broader public in Australia are very, very aware of the threat of Islamist terrorism. And we have seen that the uh, particularly the Muslim community in Australia has been at the forefront of dealing with this, at the forefront of countering violent extremism and directly contributing to major disruptions. Uh, we've had 16 major plots that have been disrupted since 2014, significantly p- because of the great relationship between all of these. But of course, um, the threat of terrorism and, and other forms of politically motivated violence are such that we can't just focus on one particular threat group. We are seeing with Christchurch, for example, that a lot of the uh, the tactics, the communications technology and some of the linkages between the violent right-wing extremist involved and those who uh, who he has associated with mirror some of the tactics that have been shared amongst Islamist terrorists and others. So we really do need to ensure that we're not looking at particular groups and uh, I'd say that fortunately in Australia, by by some comparison to the way Nick's described the US, we are fortunate in that our legal regime is neutral in terms of threat. So um, that partly is because of the way uh, common law legislation is drafted. It has to be very general. Uh, but it also does draw upon the history of Australia's experience of politically motivated violence. So 
whereas by comparison in in the US, to be able to talk about something being a terrorist act uh, and and in, interrupt, please, Nick, if I get this wrong in, in talking about your country, but being able to talk about it and bring all of those various instruments of government, um, various agencies together, there has to be a demonstrated clear link to a listed terrorist organisation and typically an international organisation. Uh, in Australia, we don't have to have that. We just have to have uh, the assessment by the uh, responsible authorities here that uh, the individual was acting in in terms of a higher cause, a politically motivated cause. Uh, it, it's easier to demonstrate if they've said that they are doing something in the name of ISIS and ISIS has reciprocated that, or if they're saying that they're doing it in the name of a right-wing extremist organisation. So our, our law is good. Uh, it, it, it can serve us well. How this is translated into policy, however, does need to have recalibration and refocus. And there are a couple of examples that I'd give. And one is is, um, as I mentioned earlier, that our broader community who really are the front line of uh, stopping terrorism in Australia, dealing with violent extremism and the uh, extremist ideology that leads to that, they're mostly attuned to this being manifest in um, uh, violent Islam. Uh, so Islamist ideology. The broader community isn't as aware of the indicators in other areas such as right-wing extremism, left-wing extremism, uh, eco-terrorism or others uh, in order to bring that to the attention of authorities. We don't live in a police state. The authorities aren't listening to everyone and able to just pick up discussions. So one thing we do need to focus on, and I think it's been it's been done well in the past few months since the, the, the terrible tragedy of Christchurch, is raising awareness that terrorism can come in many forms and from many different sectors. Yeah, so um, I might just mention a second one, which is that um, we have seen, though, that as the legislation and other policy instruments and our investigative efforts have focused so closely on Islamist terrorism, that we've had some particular tools that have been developed specifically to deal with this. And one is uh, our foreign fighter legislation. Australia is one of only a few countries in the world that has been able to really make good on uh, our commitment uh, amongst the United Nations community to uh, do something about foreign fighters to prevent their travel and to be able to prosecute them. And we have some really good foreign fighters legislation there. Uh, what Christchurch has shown us, however, is that we, we haven't necessarily thought about what someone who may have gone into a different combat zone, for example, Eastern Europe, may have been working with or, or seeking to have some skills building operating with right-wing militia, which is something that has been open and available to, to developing skills and links to these other extremist organisations. If you look at something like the Christchurch attacker, the kinds of things that it appears he might have done, uh, some other Australians who we know have been involved in right-wing extremism and it appears may have chosen to go and join militia in order to build their networks and develop some uh, familiarity with firearms and so on. If they come back to Australia or they go somewhere else, our laws are, are held short. We don't really know what to do with those people uh, in terms of terrorism. We do have some laws uh, about treason. We do have some laws about being a mercenary. But I think that the, um, the, the impact of uh, right-wing extremist ideology being spread and supported and inspiring 
uh, loan actors around the world is something that is forcing us to rethink, do we have that full package of legislation, policy and practice working together to really effectively prevent the harm across the whole spectrum of terrorism? Yeah, you, you've definitely hit on on something that I'd like to to go down the rabbit hole on. And I'll, I'll, this is a question for both of you, but I'll start with you, Nick. Uh, in the previous podcast, I discussed with uh, Dr. Christy Campion and Alex Mann from the ABC how social media and the internet has... Uh, uh, allowed groups to organise and mobilise across a, a global landscape as well and to build their networks. What responsibility do social media companies have in terms of monitoring discussions uh, that uh, go into issues like ethno-nationalism and hate towards certain segments of society? And in a broader sense, how does society find the right balance of allowing freedom of speech and freedom of association uh, whilst still reducing hate speech and stepping in when there is a heightened likelihood that these words may either encourage or turn into violent actions. Chris, you put your finger on one of the toughest public policy questions of the day, and not just in the United States, but obviously here in Australia and indeed in all Western societies that value um, freedom of expression. Um, we put we put quite a deal of a great deal of pressure on the social media companies as ISIS uh, dominated the security landscape for a, a number of years. We put a great deal of pressure on these companies to up their game, to improve their capacity to identify content and remove content when it when it was actually inciting violence or or supporting a, a, a designated a listed terrorist group, as Jacinta was saying. It's a we can hold them to the same standard when it comes to right-wing extremism and right-wing terrorism, but it's going to be far more difficult for them to, to act on the content in the way that we would wish that they could, um, in, in part because so much of the content that is out there related to right-wing ideology stops short of actually advocating specifically for violence, but it does use terminology that leaves the listener with the idea that they must take it on themselves to go do something about it. So this is the the, the very difficult challenge for the social media companies is how to identify that content that is, as you suggest, all but inciting violence, um, but may stop short of that. And and this is not simply a matter of coming up with new algorithms. This is this is a real um, public policy question that I think we're going to be grappling with. And also, it, 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 it's it's it should not be lost on the listener that uh, the kinds of 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 um, people that we might be trying to keep off of social media in this um, in this environment might actually be viewed as um, friends of one side or another in our political debate in the United States. And so, yes, we might push the, the social media companies to do more to, to um, restrain right-wing expression online, um, but that may bump up squarely against uh, the president of the United States and, and his set of supporters across the United States. It is a, an extremely hard question. I'm, I know you've got some thoughts on this, Jacinta. Yeah, and look, it is it is incredibly complex, and the issue of um, the social media piece, and also freedom of expression, and what is extremist you know, thought and and rhetoric is is one that doesn't have a simple answer, but it does have an engagement answer. Uh, that is that instead of uh, security issues and extremist violence, as traditionally we would have seen, sitting squarely in the uh, in the realm of government agencies to to deal with, because something terrible has happened or is is imminently happening. Uh, what we do have now is a, a very 
high awareness. Uh, this has grown from a low base in recent years, but a high level of awareness from tech companies and from the broader community that there's an interaction at play, uh, that this isn't something that is just the responsibility of government to deal with, as uh, tech companies have created the extraordinary tools that we all use daily to make our lives better, whether it's blockchain so that we can you know, book an airfare or do our banking or whatever, encrypted communications so that you can have um, have a private chat with someone and particularly journalists and others be able to, to protect sources. These are good things. Social media is the way that so many com- uh, communities function. But of course, we know that criminals will use this, this as well. Um, so it, I think we've just come into a, a stage of real awareness raising that instead of these just being tools for communities to come together and for the companies that create these tools and manage them to make profits, that there's something else at play where they need to step forward. And certainly since social media and encrypted communications was raised um, actually by Australia at the G20 in 2017, we have seen uh, the major companies and particularly those that are that are headquartered in the US really step up and Try to do try to do something. Uh, one of the the biggest stats that came out of that was that a few months after this, YouTube took down seventy five percent. So the vast majority of ISIS related propaganda from their website. Um, so that tells us a couple of things. One, um, they can and will do things where they know that that's something that will be helpful. And secondly, that you can't get rid of all of it. And if we flash forward now to Christchurch, again, a big wake-up call uh, because we saw the, the, the horrendous incidents of the perpetrator live streaming to some pretty t- distasteful um, sites um, and, and chat groups that attack. Again, we saw um, not just this is really interesting in the case of New Zealand, not just the Prime Minister and the, the Commissioner of Police stand up and ask the media companies to take this down, but to ask the Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Water community globally to not watch the video, and we saw a tremendous response there. So we're seeing the, the different parts of society, business, government, and community coming together to try to do something. And again, from that, we've had the Christchurch call to action where a number of, of countries, uh, mostly Western countries, um, the US and Australia included, and a number of the big tech companies say, we're going to do something to ensure that we're limiting the use by politically motivated violent extremists, we're going to limit their use of our tools to further their cause. So again, um, 8chan being brought down. Yes, we know as soon as this happened, right-wing extremist leaders said, yeah, well, we've got plenty of other sites and we will pop up elsewhere. Well, you might, but society has said that what you're doing is unacceptable. So you can have places to go, but they're not easily um, discoverable by someone who just might be curious. And you will have to fight again to rebuild those communities in an anonymous environment. So it's not one where there'll be an end, there'll be a victory over 
this type of discussion or these forums being used um, for to the pursuit of violent extremism. But it's one where I think we're bringing everyone together to, to deal with it. I think one of the things we're concerned about in the United States is this is a potentially teenage audience that is now consuming this kind of material. We've had certain states in the United States begin to recognize that they are facing a, a, a radicalization problem at a much earlier stage, that, that, that they are seeing grade school or high school uh, individuals adopting imagery of Nazis, uh, for example, or or grabbing on to some of these, these symbols of, of right-wing extremism. And again, this kind of material landing on young people at a very impressionable stage in their lives um, is something to be concerned about. And, and again, as Jacinta said, there's no simple answer here where you can simply just ask the social media companies to fix the problem for us. It ends up being a problem for society at large, government, uh, industry, um, the private sector certainly, but also communities, community-based organizations. It ends up being a, a – solutions will be found locally, I would, I would venture, uh, rather than at the national level. I would also, in my opinion, I would go back to the politicians have a responsibility here to to set some of the, the the values that the nation should follow, or at least reinforce some of the values in terms of multiculturalism and in terms of uh, freedom of expression, but also responsibility for your expressions as well. Well, in the, in the aftermath of the El Paso attack, Chris, that you referred to earlier, the president at a certain point did issue a statement, President Trump, where he um, spoke out against white supremacy. But he he did so in a very anodyne way. Uh, and what I thought he needed to do was go a step further and actually speak to those who identify as white nationalists uh, and to say to them, you don't speak for me. You are not carrying forward my agenda. I am not with you and don't don't appropriate my uh, uh, authority and status as the president of the United States when you do what you do. That would have been a far more powerful statement in my mind than a, a more simple and bland condemnation of, of all forms of extremism, including white supremacy, which which the president did. And it was clear he was also reading from a teleprompter. It was not something that you could tell was evoking real emotion and, and commitment on the part of the president. And so while I welcomed the words, uh, they could have gone so much further and had so much more, so much more impact on that audience of uh, as, as you suggested, even young people who think that they are somehow acting in a way consistent with the president's beliefs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, Jacinta, you, you mentioned before that there are some similarities between the way that the jihadi groups have operated and that we're seeing some of the domestic threats, say, say right-wing extremism operating. Is this something that you could offer some thoughts on? Is it in terms of how they get their narrative out there, how they message or how they recruit or how they operate? Where, where are we seeing those similarities and are there differences as well? Yeah. Look, traditionally, uh, all all terrorist organisations, when you strip away some of the uh, the specific uh, colourful language around justifying what they do. So, if you, for example, if you listen to a a sermon by Osama bin Laden, it will have references to to theology, uh, religious references. If you listen to um, some of yeah, some leaders in the right wing movement, then they will have references to their their pieces. And we saw quite a few of these in relation to Christchurch. But if you move those away, what we do get is very clear, common language about the way the world is, um, 
very sim- a simplistic, uh, subjective and selective historic view of the world. Uh, it's black and white. We're good. They're bad. And then something terrible has happened to put us on the back foot. And our future is one where we can we can restore this particular selective period of time and place and groups. And they all they all share this in common in terms of their ideology and the way they put forward propaganda. Uh, and they also have been watching each other as, as extremist groups who choose violence. They look at the tactics that work. How does my messaging work? Uh, can I use um, it, it, the use of encrypted communications, for example, The uh, how effective it is to use firearms, bladed weapons, how to put forward an attack? And when you dive into some of the discussions that have been made public from uh, jihadi chat rooms, again, eco-terrorist chat rooms, uh, right-wing extremist, left-wing extremist, this discussion of, of tactics and what seems to work do do share a lot in common. Because when you strip away the particular cause, these are groups who want to affect political change, uh, who have uh, a stated enemy in individuals and institutions. Uh, Islamist groups hate liberal democracies. Right-wing extremist groups hate liberal democracies. They both hate multiculturalism. Uh, So very, very similar language. And again, looking to what seems to work, what doesn't seem to work. How do I, importantly, in an age such as this, for countries such as the United States, Australia and others that have such a good record of investigating and disrupting attacks, how do I ensure that the things that I'm doing are under the radar? How do I make sure that I'm not going to be picked up by them? So a couple of examples in the Australian environment, the terrible murder of Curtis Cheng in Parramatta. We know that the perpetrator, a 15-year-old, had never been on the radar of any investigators simply because he was used by his brother, his sister and his brother-in-law who were known to authorities, who were uh, Islamist extremists and all were seeking to go to the Middle East to be foreign fighters. They set up in conjunction with others, and the court cases have shown this, have set up uh, an assassination in the name of Islamist terrorism. But they used uh, a minor uh, who did not have a background in order to perpetrate that attack. So they knew how to escape that kind of signature. Similarly, we see with the way that the Christchurch attacker um, put together Uh, the network that he was involved in and where he chose to locate himself for the past few years, how he conscientiously went through identifying his targets but also procuring the weapons for his attack uh, demonstrates that he has the the discussions, and we've seen some of them from some of the chat rooms he's involved in where people talk about this. So, So certainly they're all looking for methodologies that will work. And the only thing that we see change and wax and wane over the years is which particularly violent extremist group are we seeing uh, succeed the most um, at a particular time. And and I might just bring that back now to some of the comments that Nick was making about uh, not only the role of the internet, but the importance of the language that uh, our political leaders and other and community leaders and others use. And he talked about the importance of using that um, that high profile time when a when a key incident happens and the attention of the world and, and more importantly, your local community is on leaders. We have a really good example in Christchurch or in, in, in the aftermath of Christchurch of how uh, Prime Minister Morrison here and Prime Minister Ardern in New Zealand responded to that attack. And it was firmly and strongly in both cases. And, and 
uh, Prime Minister Morrison actually came out before the New Zealand Prime Minister to call it a terrorist attack. Uh, my sense, he did that very consciously in order to be able to send a strong message back into Australia. And that was to say, this is outrageous, this is violence, this is terrorism, uh, we condemn it absolutely, and this was a terrible attack upon a peaceful community and part of New Zealand. In the New Zealand case, we really did see a masterclass in how to use a tragic incident to really counter any benefit that right-wing extremists or Islamist extremists could have got out of the matter by um, leaders across the community standing up and saying, this was an attack on New Zealand, we condemn what's happened, and we're going to bring ourselves together more strongly as a community. As a country that had really never faced a serious terrorist attack, uh, they have come out as one of the strongest countries, I would say, globally right now in terms of their resilience to terrorism, simply by the leadership that was shown in the aftermath of the attack. So everything that Nick has said is true because at the time that these things are happening, uh, the not only the message, but the sincerity of that message will resonate. And one thing that I think we've all had to learn is that any time a leader speaks in relation to terrorism, they're speaking to every audience not just the audience that wants them to say we're being tough, but the audience that also might be feeling like they're being put upon at the time and you have to have a message for all at the same time. We've mentioned in this discussion a couple of times that it, the threat isn't only right-wing extremism and historically the threat has actually been left-wing extreme, extremism with groups like Bala Meinhof and Brigado Rouge or FARC in places like Colombia and so on. Are we seeing any other threats on the landscape? Should we be looking elsewhere other than right-wing extremist groups or are they really the only group that are the great threat on the landscape? I would just say this very briefly. Extremism can take many forms and can be motivated or animated by almost any ideology at all. And so we happen to be in a phase right now, a particular phase where it seems like um, the extremism and, and terrorism motivated by right-wing uh, ideologies seems to be on a bit of a rise or an uptick. But that doesn't mean we should assume that we are going to stay in this phase and that other forms of extremism, um, perhaps even in direct response to what we are seeing currently, might come to the fore. And it's also worth remembering in the United States that even though we, I pointed to um, both in, in terms of caseload and, and certainly focus from the government right now, the, the emphasis is on right-wing extremism, domestic terrorism. Um, the Islamist form of terrorism still remains very much a problem set in the United States. Um, not too many weeks go by where you don't read of some arrest or prosecution at some place in the United States, some major metropolitan area, where some individual motivated by ISIS or Al-Qaeda ideology um, has engaged in criminal activity uh, and, and come to the attention of law enforcement authorities. So unfortunately, we are dealing with a spectrum of extremist ideologies here. We don't have the luxury of focusing on any just one. Yeah, I'd, look, I'd absolutely agree with that. And one thing that could be probably um, explained in a, in a better way publicly is that this isn't an either or. Mm. And certainly when it comes to right-wing extremism and Islamist, one of the unhelpful things that come that can come through is that we perpetuate by saying, well, we're focusing too much on Islamist and really the right wing's the problem, that it actually feeds the narratives of both to say that there is a war between two different types of culture. And Nick's absolutely right. It, it's looking at the actions and the precursors, which is the complex piece. Uh, thinking, uh, having extremist views is not a crime. 
freedom of expression and freedom of speech is very important in, in both of our countries and, and, and for functioning liberal democracies. Uh, but the important thing is to sort of check, well, when is that becoming something that is, is inciting towards violence? And how do we ensure that any um, potential use of violence to progress a political, religious or other means is absolutely unacceptable? Uh, in terms of the overall threat from Islamist extremism, again, as Nick's, Nick's correctly said, the overwhelming threat and the overwhelming demonstrated harm from terrorism globally remains Islamist terrorism. Around uh, 19,000 people were killed in the world last year directly related to Islamist terrorism. The numbers, I think, on right-wing extremism in terms of, of deaths is um, is in the dozens rather than the, the multiples of thousands. Uh, it doesn't mean that one is more important than the other because all of these things are tragic and are terrible, uh, but it does mean that there are a lot of resources having to look at a lot of issues. Uh, the good news in terms of Islamist terrorism is that those overall numbers are down. Uh, the thing to focus the minds of countries like ours is that most of those deaths are occurring in conflict zones and most of those deaths are actually Muslims being killed by Islamist extremists. The issue to focus and concern us is that while we can describe that pretty much as something that is other and outside, it's inspired by and directed from the, the Middle East. Uh, when we look at right-wing extremism, left-wing extremism and other forms of politically motivated violence, typically these are sourced from uh, strong views held by reasonable minority groups within our own country. And this is where the concern with right-wing extremism comes from, that, uh, again, access to extremist violence uh, uh, information and groups via the internet and others, that we know, particularly with right-wing and left-wing extremism, that the views put forward and the emotions that will cause someone to choose to radicalise or to, to believe in that group are things that are grounded in everyday reality. So if we look at the dogma of right-wing extremist groups around the world, they are they are common. Uh, they are anti-immigration. They are concerns about economics. They're concerns that liberal democracies and multiculturalism are uh, bleeding out uh, the uh, the direction, the future direction of a country, and changing it in a way that's unacceptable and doesn't hold on to a perceived view of history. Um, many of the concerns about immigration, e economics, and other things are reasonable things to to be concerned about. Most countries in the world, uh, you know, the Pew surveys and others show that most people have concerns about those things in their polity. The issue is when that gets used and drawn into the you know it's average of something like seven percent of of politics supports extreme right wing or extreme and, and extreme left wing. So that small group where they drag these fairly common, reasonably sensible centrist causes and, or concerns of, um, of the constituency and then say, yeah, you know what? There's no room for the other view. This is a crisis. We're the only ones that you can, you can look to for this. And the things that we say now say that we can break out of our normal political process to do something about it, including violent means. So it's, it's insidious and it does link directly to uh, normal national issues of concern. It is something that lives and breathes in the communities uh, that we live in. It's not something uh, that is uh, distant and, and foreign, as perhaps in Australia, many, many people would see Islamist terrorism because we have we do have an affected Muslim community. Um, 
they're very they're very small uh, as as a portion of the population, and they're very high profile in doing things to counter extremism. And of course, uh, the conflicts overseas again distant and in countries that have got a whole range of other problems going on. So. Uh, right-wing extremism, something for us to think about. It doesn't affect Australia historically in the the, the volume and magnitude of incidents and groups uh, as it has in the US. But getting back to the impact of global technology, uh, you can have a group of, of half a dozen in Australia that is given great oxygen, uh, is given great connections and networks by this, particularly to, the, to groups in the US and Europe. And we can't just pretend that the small numbers here won't cause harm. That's what we saw with Christchurch. One person uh, with a small group and LinkedIn can cause irreparable harm. That's right. Extremism is a problem that we've dealt with long in history, one that's not going to go away in the near future. Nick Rasmussen, Jacinta Carroll, thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast to chat about these issues. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. And a big thanks to Nick and Jacinta for coming into the studio to talk right-wing extremism and political violence with us on the National Security Podcast. At a time when the world is moving towards geopolitical tensions reminiscent of the Cold War, it seems even more unfortunate that we all over the world are turning back to the imagined societies and social constructs of nationalism and race and using these as an excuse to attack others within our own communities. Battle lines are being drawn not only among nations but also within societies. And as we see serious social unrest increasing dramatically around the world today in places like Hong Kong, Lebanon, Chile, Jakarta, Spain, Iraq, among other places, it is no mystery why social cohesion and societal resilience rate as high priorities for many in the national security community. And in the first part of this series on right-wing extremism and domestic terror, we heard from Dr Christy Campion that right-wing extremism and political racism are not new to Australia. Alex Mann took us through some of the current operations by Australia's alt-right and their attempts to infiltrate Australian political parties. And in this episode, we heard from Nick Rasmussen and Jacinta Carroll about the policy challenges around the conceptualisation of domestic terror in a legal sense and the difficulties of protecting freedom of expression whilst detecting and disrupting plans to use violence against target groups in our societies. We've heard from all of the guests the impact that politicians and their rhetoric can have around encouraging violent actors and underpinning the liberal values of our societies and the abhorrence of racial and political violence. As always, we are keen to hear from you on this matter. What do you think? Is right-wing extremism a serious threat to national security or is it all a bit of a media beat-up and a wild goose chase? What role do politicians have in setting social norms around tolerance and acceptance? And how do we go about protecting free speech whilst combating hate speech. Hit us up if you've got some responses to this. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. Or you can drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. As always, we'd love for you to drop us a rating or some comments on whatever platform you pod with. And we will see you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast.